0: welcome welcome everybody to this week's left reckoning david here joined as always by my good friend and comrade matt Leck. how are you doing
1: i'm doing well david
0: man i'm really excited to share this episode uh with you all in just a little bit we're going to be talking uh, with alex Hookley, whom i'm a big fan of uh been listening to Buncast for a while, love uh, the book uh, the end of the end of history, and uh, talking, taking an in-depth look at Alex's new piece in American affairs on uh, the middle, millennial left or the populist moment, um, however you want to categorize that. Um, it was a fun interview. Um, really, it's like that, that's the kind of stuff I like talking about. so sort we're of taking lessons from this pretty wild past 10, 15 years of uh, global left politics.
1: Yeah, I mean, his uh, review covers uh, two books. I haven't read the Katron book, but uh, Jaeger and Bevan's uh, I have, and uh, yeah, you know, it's making me feel a little bit old, <laughs> uh, talking about these milestones that I saw as like a young man um, helped me orientate myself on this fucked up planet. Um, and you know, paths not taken, uh, you know, but uh, yeah, it's a good conversation and yeah.
0: One hundred percent. Well, um, we'll jump to that in just uh, a second. Uh, just reminder, folks, um, we're taking a little break here from from Left Reckoning uh, just for a week or so. Um, I'm getting married, um, so. Uh, we'll have this episode up, uh, but we're not going to have a bonus this weekend, uh, so we can hang out and celebrate my, and, and my friends and family.
1: I'll uh, be so. in Austin, Texas. I'll be uh, with uh, R.M. Brown. Maybe I don't know. Who it was who are we else? Who are we getting to the honky tonk?
0: <laughs> no, um, yeah, we got a lot of good folks, a lot of good friends. Sorry, folks. y'all, y'all can't come though. So <laughs> <laughs> <Don't laughs> that's what give the address. Up. Give I know. Uh, really, uh, we do uh, love all of y'all so much, and I've got some really nice messages from folks, and appreciate it. Um, you know, very happy and blessed and, uh, uh, you know, to, for, uh, you know, for my wonderful soon to be wife and, uh, for this really lovely community here at left reckoning. So, uh, thank all of y'all. Um, we'll be back. A great producing. wedding
1: present would be becoming a member at patreon.com Yes, sir. That would be a great reckoning. wedding present.
0: So why don't you go and do that? Patreon.com <laughs> slash left reckoning. Um. We'll be back soon with a lot of really, really great stuff. And this interview upcoming is, is a part of that, a really great talking with Alex. Uh, so friends see you soon and uh, take care. Welcome back Left Reckoners, David here joined by Matt as always. How you doing brother?
1: I'm doing well. Good to be with you, David. <sighs>
0: Yeah, man. I mean, we're stoked uh, to introduce our guest, the second time appearance, uh, Alex Hokely, who is uh, the author of The End of the End of History, also hosts, uh, co-hosts, the excellent podcast, BungaCast. I'm a Bunga boy, a Bunga man. I don't know what we call ourselves, but I'm
2: a... Well, we call ourselves Bunga boys. So like, I I guess it, yeah, I don't know.
0: Um, but I'm a huge fan of, of, your work and your co, uh, your co-host work as well. Um, and really thrilled to be chatting to you as always. And, uh, this time we have, you on to talk about this new piece that you wrote in American affairs, um, put up on the screen for folks, uh, omelets, uh, with eggshells on the failure of the millennial left. Um, so yeah, I mean, first of all, thank you so much, uh, for joining us, uh, and you know, always like talking to Thanks with for, you. Yeah,
2: no, thank you for having me back. It's a pleasure.
0: Well, I mean, you know, there's a lot in here and this is, I think, uh, you know, a topic that a lot of us are, are very interested in is sort of trying to categorize uh, the 2010s um, and and what those kind of political moments meant, uh, particularly uh, for the left. And I was thinking um, maybe just to start us off. Um, in the title, uh, it uses the term uh, "millennial uh, left." Um, I know in Chris uh, Cruchown's book, book uh, he uses that as well. I'm just curious. Before we dive into it, um, how you sort of define that? How you categorize? It, if that's a term that you prefer?
2: Yeah, no, it's interesting. Actually, a couple of people who've picked up have picked up on that aspect and gone, "Well, actually, why are you saying?" You know, don't you know generational politics is nonsense? You know, and it's like, well, yeah, actually, we, we actually did a whole series about how generational <laughs> politics is nonsense, but. Um, Nevertheless, I think just to, to make a general defense of the use of it, when you're talking about specific traditions, you know, like so, not society in general. Um, maybe it makes sense in like pop music or whatever. But like when you're t- when you're talking about specific traditions, like something like the left, right, um, where you have waves of activism um, which conceive of themselves in different ways, focus on different things. It makes sense, I think, to speak of in generational terms. Not that like. Everybody there is a millennial or that the politics that the millennial left brought is a um, generational politics, like it being anti boomer mm-hmm. politics. I'm not suggesting that even though there is too an element of that in there of which I'm in fact, critical. The point is just simply that you have a wave of activism in from the 1960s, which is the new left and it conceives itself as the new left against the old left. Then you have a generation that comes after that, which um, is, has imbibed of the failures of the new left um and dedicates itself more to kind of subcultural countercultural pursuits and whatever this is the kind of gen x um left and then you have Mm -hmm. the millennial left which is basically this wave of activism that follows the global financial crisis and i mean that's what i'm interested in talking about if you want to say you know it's silly to call it the millennial left fine i'm not wedded to that but the point is that other people are using this term and i think it is um you know, who are the leading, who are the leading kind of activists and people kind of intellectuals even in that, um, in this moment, which runs not so much from 2008 immediately, but more from 2011 onwards. Um, and the whole kind of Bernie moment um, the whole Corbyn moment in the UK, et cetera. Um, not that like all, all the politicians and whatever are, are millennials, in fact, very <laughs> much on the contrary in the case of like the UK and the US, but, um, you know, it's more just about, uh, those who came of age, you know, kind of post global financial crisis and the world they encounter and the activism that they, um, got involved in, in contrast to what was done before.
0: Yeah. You know, and, um, I mean, I really wanted to like dive into to some of the specifics here, but, um, you know, as you know, a younger guy and, you know, this is sort of like, was my introduction uh, to politics. I mean, I remember, um, when, uh, Cernick's book, Cernick's and, uh, Alex Williams book came out, for example, um, you know, Paying a lot of attention to what's going on in Greece because, oh man, there's like a socialist party coming into power then you know, Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders. Um, one thing that, you know, and maybe this is just something that happens with time, but like, uh, the height, like the real energy behind this movement, uh, feels sort of short in the sense of the kind of, uh, political side. Um, you know, even though this is like a long decades process that we can sort of talk about, um, like the actual activity of Syriza, of Jeremy Corbyn's movement, of the Bernie Sanders movement, um, you know, both of them, both Corbyn and Sanders sort of have, uh, um, you know, a first and second act, um, <laughs> one a little bit more impressive than the latter. Um, but, yeah, it was,
2: you know, it just it, I, I'm struck with how short this time period sort of feels looking back. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, we wrote a book which its main idea is about the end of the end of history period. Its second idea is the failure of the of left populism. Um, which is a term that we use. um, And we can get into, again, maybe the terminology around that. But, you know, to the extent we're talking about a a broad thing, it can be interchanged with the millennial left or whatever. Um, But, you know, we want to, we criticize that. And we were writing that book in 2019 into 2020, published in 2021, um, really kind of going, okay, well, what's just happened with the start of the pandemic and the defeat of the second Bernie campaign and the, and the defeat of, uh, of, of Corbin in the general election in 2019, like this thing's over. Right. Um, and at the time it made sense to write about it because it was a thing that got a lot of people interested in politics again and made people feel hopeful Mm -hmm. for the left for the first time in ages, 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 right. You know, like maybe since the anti-globalization movement and and I think to a larger degree than, than that. Um, and so you could say maybe since the seventies or something. Right. So, um, But if I were to write that book now in 2024, you know, it's a good question about whether how much we would, how much time we'd actually dedicate to that. Um, I think the critique of it is very important because Mm -hmm. if you're on the left and you can see yourself as being on the left, that to not repeat the errors of that, which I think very serious errors um, is the most important thing. Um, So, you know, that it's still worth making the critique, but, you know, at the same time, it's also something which was so brief that it was like this kind of maybe we'll look back on it as the last gasp of the left rather than mm-hmm. some new beginning. Well, I mean, I think maybe to sort of dive in here, um,
0: how would you sort of define this millennial politics or, or left populism uh, to folks? I mean, what are its kind of trademarks, um, you know, I think maybe compared to other political movements today or even versions of the left in the past.
2: Right. I mean, I think firstly, it's anti-neoliberal. It's very it, it self-consciously conceived as being against neoliberal austerity, especially. Um, so I think probably the unifying factor is the demand for better services, um, better social services, more, more public spending, greater welfare um, and, and associated to that. Though maybe this is left le- sometimes less clear in its self-conception, um, but it's responding to a crisis of politics, right? So to a crisis of representation. Which is common to all "quote unquote" populism. In fact, populism arises at moments of um, where there's a crisis in representation, right? So people don't, and that goes for the right, it goes for the left, it even goes for certain centrist types of, of populism, as maybe like contradictory as those terms may sound to people. Um, but you know, mm. you've got various examples. You have got examples in Spain, for example, in France, whatever of, of kind of a, you know, even like Emmanuel Macron in France is like an example of a kind of centrist. Neoliberal populist which might be like well, okay, how do those things fit together, but um, the point being is that the common element is this crisis of representation and so there's a a general feeling um, across the West of they don't represent us Um, and sometimes that becomes a slogan, you know, in in Spanish speaking countries, it was like a, you know, it it literally was a slogan, you know, they don't represent us and um, I think that maybe Maybe wasn't so clear in the minds of a lot of activists, but I think it was certainly the the backdrop to it. And I think that is, that's what it's distinct about, about, uh, so it's anti neoliberal and it's, um, and it's, um, and, and it's, uh, like response to this crisis of representation. Now there's two moments in it i think really the the first moment is the kind of horizontalist occupation streets occupation um whether it's occupy whether it's like the arab spring or people being inspired by the arab spring the occupation of the squares in southern europe um various other protests around the world here in brazil we had our own moment in in june of 2013 which set off a whole wave of um <clears throat> of consequences which ended with bolsonaro's election um so it took its twists and turns but it started as something from the left Um, And and then became (laughs) something confused and then became very right wing. Um, So that was the kind of first phase of it. And the second phase of it is suddenly this moment where there's a turn to electoral politics, which is like a real 180 about face, which happens, you know, around 2015, where suddenly um, from the squares, from these occupations, from these Manifestations which had like all sorts of demands, you know, it was a bit of a free for all, um, which in in that regard were quite similar to the sort of alter globalization protests of like Seattle '99, Genoa, etc. That whole moment, um, it was similar in that regard. But then suddenly there's this turn towards, you know, hey, what if we, <laughs> what if we got executive power, right? What if we, what if we won elections, and suddenly people start talking about power, about winning. Um, which we can get into kind of the pros and cons of that. Um, but, uh, but you know, I think that it's important to conceptualize it, I guess, in those two moments. And and that's something that applies, um, to, you know, across quite a lot of countries, you know, it, but it's, it's clear in the US, it's clear in the UK.
0: No, I mean, absolutely. And I mean, um, you know, I think this is why this, this, this bit of history is so fascinating. Um, because you know, there is a kind of very similar history in, in a lot of different countries with these movements, right? With their own quirks and u- uniqueness, but generally like there's a script you can follow. Um, which I don't know, it just makes it a very interesting kind of puzzle, um, to work through because it means that there's something more than like, you know, cause you could look, for example, if you took like just an American centric version of like Bernie Sanders campaign and you can come up with all these theories about local, like, oh, if he would have said this, or if he would have done this, or if this would have happened, maybe he would have, won. It. look, maybe. Um, but the fact that like we're just seeing this kind of calculus fall over and over and over across different contexts, I think means that there's something more fundamental um, here. And I think uh, one of these things that is 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 kind of interesting that you note in your piece um, about uh, you know what what you and the, uh, the the folks whose books you're reviewing were calling the left populist gamble, um, talking about how. Uh, because sorry, um, like there was like one thing is like you noted, like moving from protest to politics. And that's the phrase that Leo Panch would use a lot. And there's a lot of excitement that the left was finally moving from doing protests and doing politics. Um, but I think one thing is that, that you sort of note in your piece, and I think it's becoming more and more clear, um, is that there was a kind of naive attitude uh, towards the state and power. Um, and, and I was just curious if you could sort of talk us through a little bit um, of that, because I think that that's something that not only did these movements rub up against, but I remember very clearly one day sitting with Baskar Sankara, um, you know, founder of Jackman Magazine, uh, with, with Michael Brooks, and, and Baskar said something along the lines of, like, you know, if Bernie Sanders got elected president back in 2016, um, it would have been extremely disappointing. Um, and like not advocating against it, but just sort of like, you know, Bernie Sanders was going to be fighting for his life to get any of these things done. Right. And yeah. a lot of people were just sort of like, oh, we're going to win the election and roses are going to fall from the sky. And you know, we've yeah. done it.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, so, the, you know, there's an irony in this. I know several ironies in the way that actually there's a continuity between the kind of protest phase and the politics phase, even though they seem diametrically opposed and facing in different directions. Um, there, there's like all these kind of terrible ways that things keep, be, keep repeating themselves. So You know, Vincent Bevins, in his book, does this, like, neat little tweet-style thing where, like, he satirizes the protesters who just basically, like, um, something happened, um, call people under the streets, um, the police repress you, people get really angry, and then everyone else comes out on the street, blank space. Good things happen or like, you know, government falls or something, you know, so there's like this missing element where of of strategy where like you go from mounting this protest to like something good happening or, you know, revolution or even just, Mm -hmm. you know, changing the government or whatever. But actually the same thing repeats itself when you have this supposedly much more serious, more organized, uh, more formal form of politics in fighting elections you know trying to get bernie sanders elected trying to get the labor party elected under jeremy corbyn etc series of li- actually getting elected and, and forming a government and um actually able to represent the people you know representing a large mass of people not to be forgotten right um mm-hmm. and failing and failing right and we can maybe return to the greece case i think because as i mentioned several points in the in the thing it kind of crystallizes a lot of the problems um, and it's actually worth thinking through because it it it's, it puts you in the position of thinking, okay, well, what if Bernie Sanders did win, right? Or what if mm-hmm. what if Corbyn did become elected prime minister? And there's this kind of blank space where we just kind of go, ah, oh, well, good things will happen. Okay, what things were was the the millennial left um, wanting to achieve? Well, I think at a kind of basic consensus minimum a roll back of neoliberalism and i say a roll back because there isn't really any um very much policy going on and thinking about how to restart growth for example i think most Mm -hmm. people on the left kind of go growth what are you talking about that's It's not interesting i want (laughs) i want i want to i want to resolve equality you know i want equality i want less inequality i want um i want to eat the rich i want to whatever right um Mm -hmm. but actually so there's no there's no real all it is is kind of let's roll back to the pre-neoliberal period and have that again because we didn't need to do neoliberalism that was bad let's just undo that and therefore what do you want if well if you know you have if you have a a friendly left-wing government they will then take care of people and they'll do things like maybe increase taxation on the wealthy they'll increase um, social spending, um, increase um, unemployment insurance uh, maybe provide maybe maybe at the most kind of provides a jobs guarantee, which is a more sort of novel sort of thing, but basically yeah trying to maybe at the, at the most you know do a new new deal um which you know ignores that we're in ra- radically different circumstances to that which kind of led to the new deal um that, you know you had for example a revolutionary threat which um mm-hmm. or these revolutionary organizations which um you know which would seriously challenged bosses domination in the workplace and so on um which put fear into the hearts of of uh, of the bourgeoisie um that doesn't exist now so you know i think you have to ask yourself serious questions about what is possible in those circumstances so anyway i think there's this kind of there's this kind of leap and i remember we did an episode on bunga cast back in 2019 going okay it looks like Bernie might win the democratic nomination. It seems possible, you know, like he had his, he had his go in 2016, me looking from afar, you'd think, well, hopefully all the activist base and, and the leaders of the campaign and whatever have learned lessons from that and will be better and stronger now in 2019, obviously it proved to be the opposite, um, mm. because Bernie got dragged in fundamentally into the anti-Trump, um, anti-Trump movement. And that actually completely defused his populist, uh, sort of energy and proposal, but Nevertheless, you know, there was there was this possibility that that he would win the nomination and then, you know, potentially win against an unpopular Trump. And what then? Um, so I was like trying to sketch out, OK, what do you do, actually, if, if, if as, as you know, from the left, what do you do in response to a Bernie government? Do you critique it? Do you try to push it leftwards? But, you know, what, what is actually the relationship mm-hmm. to this? And some people were like, why are you doing an episode on this? We have so much to actually still achieve till we get him there. And I'm like, well, yeah, but let's actually let's let's play. Let's let's play this through, you know, and I think there's not enough of that. Going on, I think that as I say in that article, you know, you can see this executive power, right? And you know, the the imperial presidency has a has a great degree of power, but mainly abroad. So, you know, there's a limit to what you can mm-hmm. do. So you're going to have a legislature, which is probably going to be hostile unless you have a massive wave um, electing. You know, electing favorable congressmen, which wasn't going to be the case actually with the Bernie yeah. movement in the US. Um, in the UK, far more favorable because it's a parliamentary system. And, and but even then, you have a, the parliamentary labor party who was largely set against <laughs> Corbyn, right? They, they, they put the knife into his back. So, um, that was unlikely to happen. And then that ignores the whole rest of the state. Right, that you basically got a judiciary which is going to do everything it can, including playing dirty to rule things out as as um, as illegal. You're going to have the deep state kind of conniving against you in all sorts of ways. You might have employers um, also kind of doing lockouts, trying to run the economy down, um, making lives hard, uh, people's lives hard. And then you've got even supranational institutions like the EU um, or you know um, hostile uh, foreign governments which are hostile to your interests. Also trying to sabotage you. So, I mean, none of this is to say, you know, give up on politics because, because things are difficult, you know, things are impossible, but I think without reckoning with that, you're, you're not even, you know, you're, you're, you're playing um, a very high stakes sort of poker or, you know, pick your game. Um, But you know, that's the, that's the populist gamble, right? That you can just seize executive power um, as, as Anton Jaeger and Arthur Bordiello note in their book, as if by surprise, you know that suddenly you might you might just sneak in and and become president and then aha go, got you neoliberals. <laughs> now we're holding <clears throat> now we're holding the reins,
0: yeah, and I mean um you know like the kind of bit I always do on the program is like Bernie had that slogan, not me us um and you know I think there's a little bit like. Bernie is is a bit of a puzzling character to me because um, you know sometimes I do feel you know I mean look Bernie Sanders did something that I think really awoke a lot of potential in American politics that just didn't exist before, um, but not. Translating any of that movement into any kind of political form or organization, I find, to just be a disastrous aspect of, of his legacy. Go ahead, Matt. And it's yeah.
1: especially interesting when you look back, and we've talked about Bernie um, in, in the early 90s, and he expressed his hesitancy to endorse <laughs> Jesse Jackson. Like he, The weird thing about Bernie is you can find things of where he looks to get the actual critique that needs to be leveled at him. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and I mean, um, you know, but what I was saying is, like, you know, he has that slogan, like, not me, us. And, um, you know, which, like, in a sense, it sort of made sense in in the, like, it was a nice one. I was like, oh, this is great. We love each other. We're looking out for one another. But, like, literally, it's like if you want to take on the course, you're going to have to have something bigger than just, like, this kind of uh, political movement. But there was just zero work to actually achieve or create any kind of movement around that, right? It was just sort of like, oh, you know, it's nice Grandpa Bernie thinks about us, and he's not selfish and full of himself, Um, which, in a kind of ironic way, actually, like... You know, elevated him to like a superhuman, you know, figure, um, because oh, we'll just, you know, Bernie will do this uh, when he gets in, in, in yeah. into office, um, yeah. And you know, there just was a, there wasn't a strong reckoning of, of 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 what was going on, and I think more than anything, there wasn't even a place uh, to have that kind of reckoning or debate or argument um, in the U.S. at least, right? Because it was an atomized like group of people coming to it from different things, some people who watched a lot of political YouTube or TYT back in the day, some young socialists, you know, some old head believers of, you know, labor politics. Um, You know, there there was a a kind of, uh, not only was there not a developed kind of political organization, I think, on the left in the US, um, there wasn't really strong recognition of one, how important it is, or two, even like a recognition of like, hey, we got to, we got to build this like, yesterday.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess. There's different ways of, to conceive of this, but there's also, you know, competition, competition's good. This is one of the places like the left should, should be open to competition, especially, um, which is comp- intra-left competition, right? That different groups, mm-hmm. whether it's factions within a party, um, or their different parties competing, um, against each other for the masses, right? Um, and that is a productive, that has generally been a productive process, right? Where, you know, you might have a party saying, look, we, maybe we support Bernie, but not if he runs with the Democrats or we are against the whole Bernie campaign because it's, um, trying trying to kind of like reinvest in, in the democratic party. And the sooner that it struggles or dies, the better, you know, whatever. And then, and see who, who kind of wins out of that. Um, and I think there's a, a tendency on the left to, especially today conscious of the weakness of, and the absence of organizations to kind of mollycoddle the left itself and to try to go, well, let's not, let's not critique because that might break things or that might give um, mm-hmm. ammunition to, to our opposition. Um, but to return to kind of the, the, the kind of first point you were making, yeah, the, really the tragedy, I mean, I think the the bare minimum that one would have expected to kind of endorse the Bernie campaign would have been for it to be premised on the fact that he might have, um, you know spurred on a new organization from that to use that you know to use that organization to set up something new and to run against the democrats um but of course as soon as you're running as an anti-trump candidate or buying into the the necessity um, you know, the imperative of defeating Trump, then it becomes quite hard for you to set up a third party, which is obviously going to eat into democratic votes and we'll put Trump in the presidency mm-hmm. and you have to go, yeah, that's fine. Let Trump be pr-. I mean, there's no, you know, he's not any better or worse than the other guy. Maybe even better in some respects, who cares? N- none of our business. Our business is a long-term pro- project of, of social transformation. And we have to, we have to lump that. Um, but the need for immediacy and for kind of achieving immediate wins always actually makes you into a sucker for like the electoral cycle and the American whole American political system and the media circus that accompanies it is a, to me it seems a whole means of impeding any kind of radical politics from ever emerging because you're constantly getting caught up in the in the next cycle the next fever um, and then it dumps you out da- out and you're down and you're like uninterested in politics for two years and then you get reactivated for two years and you know this has mm-hmm. been the case for, for for a long time you know I I you know, maybe some younger people aren't aware of that, but I think that then it's the, the onus is on those who are a bit older to say, well, <laughs> don't get, don't get sucked into this again. You
0: know? Um, well, you use a term in your piece called short termism and uh, you know, I was curious if you could put some meat on that for the audience here. Cause I do think that that is like a kind of strategic issue that you're short of uh, getting into there.
2: Yeah. So the, I make the point actually that, the left the millennial left ended up reflecting back capitalism's worst tendencies in many regards of being kind of anti organization building anti institutional um in favor of kind of just controlling flows so for example you know capital is interested in controlling flows in terms of like gaining investment um and not really the state taking charge of of uh, leading investment well what's the left doing the left's trying to corral activists who are energized at election time to vote for a candidate and then And then, I don't know, (laughs) you know, hopefully they win and then if they don't, nothing happens or they, you know, they they do it all again later. Um, And that also, you know, connects to this short-termism, which um, we know that capitalism is obviously short-termist. It's focused on, for example, um, inflating stock prices um, rather than kind of long-term growth of a company even, right? Um, Even on its own terms, that's kind of prejudicial, let alone kind of thinking about the capitalist state focused on, you know politicians on winning the next election. Um, The the kind of yeah, you know, the kind of general short termism of politics, Um, and the left in that regard as well. I mean, you know, one of the kind of things that makes democratic politics of any sort, I don't mean kind of necessarily establishment politics, I mean, democratic in the in the proper sense of it. um, The only that that makes that possible is processes which are sometimes slow, um, like deliberation you know which just sometimes take time there's no there's no way of rushing it and all the attempts to rush it tend to be authoritarian right they attempt to be kind of like let's clamp down on debate and and someone some bureaucrat take a decision Um, and there's so many kind of forces within our society which try to accelerate things and make things immediate shortening attention spans for example Um, you're right there yeah did I lose you No, no, we're good we're good okay um you know the kind of shortening attention spans for instance and the left in theory is the only force in society which can and should be long-termist thinking about not certainly not four years not eight years but thinking about 20 years and maybe more you know but thinking in in that Mm -hmm. sort of time span um and that's hard because you don't get your quick wins you don't get the 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 kind of um you know, psychological payoff of, of getting all excited about this election cycle and and um, and then the next one and whatever. Um, but otherwise, you know, the, the the road to hell is quite clearly paved in in, in this kind of short term <laughs> cycles um, of immediacy and and like increasing idiocy. And so the left has to be long termist, has to be thinking in ter- in terms of building organizations which are capable of appealing to people and fighting and also reckoning. I think, you know, which is which is part of this is that. The left is very weak, exceptionally mm-hmm. weak, if if the left exists at all. And, I, I, you know, <laughs> I go back and forth in it. Um, it either exists and is terrible or it doesn't exist at all. Um, and, you know, to the extent that it that it does exist, it needs to be it, it needs to be conscious of that weakness and to do one thing. I don't know what that thing is. Right. And I you know, you can we can think I think that in many ways, politics has to kind of go back to really go back to basics. But you need to be on one thing, focus on, for example, like clawing back time from employers, right? Shortening the working day Mm -hmm. at the same wages, whatever. I think that might be a good one, but you know, the left can only do one thing. And the fact that left tries to do everything all the time um, is is a failure. I mean, just take one example, because I think I mentioned it in the piece about, we'll make some reference to to Chile, right? So Chile had Mm -hmm. this massive uprising, right? At the the end of the last decade, which led to a new um, constitutional assembly, which was in a way a, a means of the establishment kind of falling off the street protests. Kind of getting it to cool down like okay fine fine we'll do a new constitution which is a major thing but the street protests could have pushed further i think in, in really taking down the establishment but anyway there we are what does the left do um rather than kind of, it, it does some good stuff like for example getting rid of the second chamber so making it a, like a unicameral um system um which can't be overruled by the grandees who are stuck there in senate right good thing mm-hmm. um and there's some other kind of you know kind of um slim down kind of constitutional measures, which are or not constitutional measures, but, but it, um, you know, ways of writing the constitution, which really focus on um, popular power on democracy. But what does it do? It also piles in with a bunch of kind of like, quote, unquote, woke kind of demands mm-hmm. and pet causes and various other kind of um, guarantees about social spending and blah, 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 which, you know, are often not worth the, the, the paper they're written on. And to the left kind of piles in like oh cool we have an opportunity here let's let's try to do it let's pile in everything not recognizing the moment is um is always going to be short it's always going to be ephemeral um the investment of the masses in in that project is going to be also be short um, and needs to have gains have wins and what happened in chile is that is precisely that uh, they didn't provide that they piled in a constitution with loads of stuff and because of broadly speaking the crisis of representation around the world Um, and Mm -hmm. the, the anti politics of, of the masses of kind of rejection of, of the political establishment, very well grounded one, um, they quickly fell foul of, 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 uh, of the majority and the majority voted down the constitution, which they had put invested so much effort into, to to elaborate. And so, you know, the, the promise that the Chilean, um, activists made that the country which first introduced neoliberalism, um, would be the first country in which it dies, unfortunately. 't didn't, didn't prove to be a reality so um, and yeah and
0: no no and like and it's such a shame and I think that like that that episode is if you were to want to write you know the book on on, on those periods like that is the bookend um in in, in my opinion and in, in a lot of ways who knows maybe maybe there'll be um, more chapters or anything like that but um I wanted to talk a little bit because I think this Chilean Constitution sort of Touches on I think a fundamental thing that we have to talk about It's like we talk about strategy orientation all those kind of things, um, but we have to think about like the makeup and the ideas of of, of this movement, um, class makeup, social makeup, because um, I think the Chilean comp- uh, constitution um, you know it really did highlight that that like it had not only did it was it like there's too much in there, but it's like this real anxiety that you see amongst leftists, where it's like if you don't talk about everything, then you're like against it. Right. Mm. So it's like if you want to say, like, oh, this is a bad thing that's happening in this group, you also say, well, you know, there's other groups that are also affected by really bad things, too. Um, You know, and like one, I think that's bad uh, uh, messaging and all that, but I think it actually gets to something deeper in, in the kind of psychological makeup um, of, of, of this group, but, um, you know, and, and I think it's notable that even in a country like, you know, Chile, which is different in, in some respects in the United States, you see again, these similar kinds of forms and anxieties and ways of talking and ways of being, um, you know, so let's talk a little bit about like this kind of class social makeup of uh, this millennial left, uh, and how you would sort of categorize it.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it's fairly well known that the left sort in terms of like its activist base and, and support. Um, or even in terms of looking at the voting patterns and looking at the class breakdown of political parties um, You have the what you know, what uh, Thomas Piketty called the Brahmin left um, Where and and you know, I think I, I think the radical left is is not a huge amount better than this, right? It's it's often based in kind of professional middle-class um, often downwardly mobile middle-class uh, people who unlike their parents or grandparents Find that they struggle to buy a house um, burdened with educational debt and so on now none of that's a problem right like that's not i don't think we should be like essentialists and say oh well, you're middle class me i'm middle class kick me out you know like i think we have to Think political part of thinking politically is also kind of thinking beyond yourself right and and um mm-hmm. it was always the case that you know proletarian movements often had kind of leaderships or intellectuals who were you know from middle class backgrounds but it's about your, your political allegiance to to the cause and to the cause of socialism and that's what's fundamental not specifically who your parents are or what you know what you do for a job or whatever but the problem is that once you get to an aggregate level and you're looking at it and you're like, well, nearly everyone heres middle class, then obviously their interests will prevail. Now it doesn't mean that that, that an alliance um, or some sort of coalition is impossible. Um, but you know one would expect nevertheless that you know the, that kind of the middle class interest will prevail. So you know the focus on um, student debt entirely valid. But it would be better, I think, if the middle class would speak in its own name rather than trying to pretend to be speaking for, <laughs> for the working class um, and just say, well, you know, this is for kind of mainly middle class people who go to university, but actually it'd be really good to stop this kind of burdening and this pile up of debt, um, which will free people and, and all the economic consequences of that. Let's just do that. And this is for us, you know, but, but, you know, I think there's a, there is an allergy to interest to interest in, I don't mean, um, economic interest. I mean, like, uh, you know, so, you know, your self-interest on the left, like there's this idea that you need to be doing good things for other people. You need to be the caring type, um, who, who tries to protect other people from harm and so on. Um, but left-wing politics of um, radical politics was always traditionally based on self-interest, right? I mean, the self-interest of of the working class, um, in some degree, at least in in some immediate sense in working class advancement. Um, so. Um, and, and people doing it for themselves and with their own organizations. So I think once you, once you lose that, yeah, you know, it's, you get a kind of middle-class do-gooder thing going on, which Mm -hmm. becomes even more apparent now that, um, the populist moment has definitely passed above 2015, 2016, 2017, um, where there was genuine working class interest in, um, the sort of left populist, um, gamble at least. Um, you know, for, for all, for all the problems that we know that, that it had, but, um, you know, once that evaporates again, it, it exposes ever more, the, the kind of class basis of, of that. And, you know, the left is able to say, to turn to other, uh, phenomena and say, ah, but you see that just expresses the interest of, uh, you know, small business owners, or this expresses the interest of the financial bourgeoisie, or this expresses the interest of, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but it can't, but it's unable to do it with itself. Um, and then say, well, actually most likely the reason that these things are being pursued, because it's like the kind of, um, it's what the, you know, the chilling constitution or, or this idea of like piling all your pet causes on. I mean, you know, Christopher Lash was right. That is narcissism, right? It's narcissistic, it's narcissistic <laughs> yeah. in the sense of it being self-focused that you need to have yourself represented and care about what, you know, that I will, I care about, you know, animals and therefore I need to make sure veganism gets its say in there you know, to pick up a really ridiculous example, um, which I don't think many people Mm -hmm. take seriously, but you know, I don't think any of the other examples are supposedly more serious cases um, are necessarily that much better. Um, And so you, that narcissism, the contrast to that would be um, far more instrumental politics and far more kind of cold blooded sense of, okay, look, we need to be very strategic about this. We need to be instrumental. um, And we need to build organizations are focused on doing this thing and and that thing alone.
0: well, you know Ben Ben Fong um, you know our, our friend and uh, had a monster recently uh, talked about his new show on Jack and which people should be listened to um, you know he had a great essay in Damage magazine like uh, you know call, I think I'm forgetting the title but something along the lines of like towards like a radical minimalism yeah, um, right which is like with so much of the left is like yeah we have to speak about everything it's like you know we can actually as a movement say hey we're just not involving ourselves in whatever this issue is like we're here for you know working class emancipation, working class power, you know wages, whatever. Um, and I, I, I found that piece to be, be really good and very much against the sensibilities of a lot of folks. Um, but you know, going back to interest politics, I, I mean, I have to ask you on that point though, um, because I think one thing that's very clear, for example, about the Labour Party um, is that that social class that ended up being very influential in the Labour Party, which was like you know wealthy middle class liberals, leftists, whatever you want to call them in yeah. London um who you know were horrified at you know brexit um oftentimes for, for very much like cultural reasons or for like very cynical like I don't want to have to wait in line when I'm going to Spain on vacation <laughs> right um, yeah. you know kind of stuff um, right so they you know and that that might be a genuine interest um you know for them. Um, it's a stupid one, um, but it's, you know, a, a genuine one. I mean, so how, how to advocate, you know, that group of people recognize, uh, you know, that like the fight for breakfast was a fight for, for, for the, sorry, the fight for Brexit was a fight for democracy, um, and, and, you know, for, for building a, you know, different kind of politics. I mean, like that's, that's an interest that you actually might see just genuine clashes between the working class base that we would want to construct on the left. And, you know, this group of people who ends up having a lot of influence in left wing politics.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, this is why I, I called the piece um, omelettes with eggshells, right? Because it's like, you, they, you know, they want to make an omelette, but they don't want to break the eggs. So, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> what you end up with, right? And, you know, breaking the eggs, there might be breaking with the Democratic Party, it might be leaving the EU. Um, but, you know, a, a whole series of neoliberal institutions or like neoliberalized institutions, which the left is actually pretty comfortable with. They like the institutions. It's kind of fine. It's cozy. Um, we just want changes in policy. And i mean that's just a failure of political analysis and you know it, with the with the case in britain i think it's very clear they tried to wield together a coalition which worked for a little while and in, in 2017 while corbyn said i'm going to honor the referendum but it you know what happened in mm-hmm. britain was exceptional in with all the establishment i mean people will always say, oh but you had this capitalist actually in favor of brexit or blah blah, blah or you had this newspaper in favor of brexit no let's be serious the vast bulk of the establishment was in favour of remaining within the EU, as they should be, because it is a conservative institution, and the mm-hmm. the working class. Nevertheless, again, you can say, well, there's some sections of the working class didn't vote for Brexit. Yes, there's all these exceptions. Broadly speaking, um, the less well-to-do um, people, and especially the parts of the country that are less well-to-do and mm-hmm. definitely kind of forgotten, um, the regional inequality in the UK is exceptionally you know, exceptionally big. Those, those people voted despite all the fear to leave the EU. You know what? Fuck it. Let's, let's do it. Let's break this thing. Um, and the left just didn't want to reckon with that. And it kind of went, well, but look, we need to focus on neoliberalism. We need to focus on these policies. We need to help welfare. What, what are we fussing around with this supranational institution and whether in or out? that's just a, a mere constitutional matter. And rather than understanding it as absolutely fundamental and foundational and a major support for, um kind of neoliberal neoliberal rule um the the ability to outsource um decisions to to kind of european level um and also the simple fact that if you had a socialist government in the uk um not only would certain policies not be allowed but it would be a massive massive um kind of wedge in any left government which would uh, do all, all everything in its power to kind of get them out of um get them out of power so the Corbyn project persisted. I mean, I know lots of people who were like, no, look, I'm not anti-Brexit. I think it's fine, but I'm kind of whatever about it. But, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people are kind of anti-Brexit, which is to say a lot of the kind of middle-class metropolitan activist base, young people especially, um, who were like, well, okay, so let's try to keep these two plates spinning at the same time. And that was impossible because they ultimately led to Corbyn's endorsement of a, of a so-called people's vote, which is to say, uh, you know, to rerun, rerun, uh, uh, the election because they didn't like the result and, mm-hmm. uh, and that, and that lost them and that lost them huge, huge support because it's like, you'd, if you can't take people's vote seriously and say, well, look, maybe I disagreed with it, but I'm going to honor it at the very least, then, um, I don't know how you can ask them for, for your vote again and say, well, I'm going to honor it and, and drive through these policies, you know, um, Left tries to be too nice and not and not hard ass <laughs> enough, and be like, "Look, we're going to be mean, and we're going to do this one thing that we said we're going to do, and we're going to focus on that." You
0: know. Mm. Um, um, ahead you
1: ahead. know, um, one thing uh, I'm I'm curious to get your take on is, I don't have much uh, disagreement in terms of like the qualitative scoreboard uh, as things uh, have not closed, you know, it's not lost on me that. Probably has moved the as much as the AFL-CIO coming out for a ceasefire is, um the guy setting himself on fire uh, recently. So I feel like we're kind of lost spinning our tires um, in impotence. But uh, one qualitative difference I want your take on is the UAW. Uh, and we have Sean Fain and uh, other members of uh, leaders of the UAW talking about things like, you know, taking back more of your time from bosses. Uh, And and I think, you know, we talked with the Valley Labor Report guys last week. A lot of that is a product of these millennial left, or at least this time period of seeing uh, some of these uh, things play out. I'm curious your take on if you notice a qualitative change and the significance about there. And also um, to get to this whole thing of like, are we over-egging the pudding so much? And I I think the the Gaza um, ceasefire demand is, you know, I think something... Like, I think the righteousness is, is pretty unimpeached, but is that something that's, you know, is that an example of, uh, you know, previously the, the unions have not taken, say, taken a strong stance on the Vietnam War. Uh, and I'm curious, like, is that like strategically, I'm, I'm just curious uh, to put that in the context of what we've been talking about uh, the past 45 minutes.
2: I mean, I'm going to make myself unpopular, but I, that's, that's, I guess, not a problem. Um, I don't think there's anything <laughs> to be gained, particularly for the left. I mean, in, in, in the cause of socialism through militating around the Israel-Palestine conflict. I think it's absolutely right that they should call a ceasefire, but there's a huge range of questions about what next. The Israel-Palestine conflict is not the key to the imperialist international world system. It's actually kind of a small, small local conflict, which isn't expressive of anything wider and that there is no hope for Palestinian liberation. It's a lost cause. Unfortunately, and it's terribly tragic for the Palestinians, but, um, you know, and I hope that there, I think there's probably more prospect of a solution coming from within Israel. And even that seems looks really, really unlikely. So, um, you know, I, I just think, you know, I there's a funny thing with the unions where there's like a kind of split between kind of the workers thing where it's like, no union should only focus on wages and should be political at all. Right. Which Mm -hmm. I don't agree with, you know, I mean, the kind of Lenin's critique of economism is, is very apposite here, you know, in terms of, um, there's a a kind of a a certain conservatism in that of not trying to speak beyond your, um, (laughs) you know, your realm and, and not be too political. But the, the problem is that a lot of the way that unions end up being political today tends to be, um, you know, and for lack of a better way, like a kind of woke concern, you know, um, I don't think it's going to start through Palestine. Right. And it's actually interesting. One of the other reviews, um, this is in the new Statesman um, by Will Davis of the same books that I reviewed. So I had to kind of look at them after having written my thing um, that like, you know, he also looks at, at kind of the, the, the movement around Palestine now as a potential rejuvenation for the left. Um and how that might emerge and and um you know it is mm-hmm. able to speak for speak for those who are unable to represent themselves no nothing good has ever come come on like nothing good has ever come for the past like thirty forty years of politics like this of people tr- of 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 the left trying to represent kind of you know deserving victims over there right it, it creates a kind of moralistic politics which is completely not. Which is never rooted and has no connection to the material interests of the working class and the people they're trying to represent. So, um, you know, I just think that's a, a kind of a, a political dead end. Now, I do think that the um, from an extremely low base, but uptick in in labor militancy in the U.S. is one of the few exciting things going on. Um, particularly because it's in the U.S. I mean, it's it still mm-hmm. you know matters more what the U.S. left does than any other left anywhere else. Um, I hate to say. But um, you know that that remains to be that remains the case, um, and so I think you know um, leader of the UAW you know has a has a kind of um, militancy to him which I think hasn't been seen in a while. I think that's all to be welcomed and that's and that's good. Um, but you know, I, the, if you're going to jump to being you know kind of into more political activism, there's many steps before you start trying to resolve what's going on in 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 palestine you know i mean i think you know you, i think it's totally legitimate to campaign for in the us for the us to, to, to stop funding israel you know in fact there's kind of israelis who want that as well so you know i think that's entirely mm-hmm. kind of legitimate but again you can't do everything so you know you're gonna have to pick your well, battles
0: you know like you know we might have you know some disagreement over this but i think you know a, a similarity is like you know we were on DM twenty five's uh, you know channel the other day and they're asking us about like what's going on in the US and Palestine and one of the things that I was saying is that like you know yeah it's it is extremely impressive all of the 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 mobilization around this issue in in this country and I think that it's important to not treat it as spontaneous right i um, actually a lot of this has actually been like you know the grou- groups like DSA sort of having more presence in a lot of organizations parts of the country. Um, But I think it's undeniably uh, clear that like, yeah, is this going to necessarily be good for the left? I don't really see um, this being something that's like bringing people into, quote unquote, like social organizations or anything like that. Um, And I I think that's a very fair point. So that's not an argument just to say like, hey, you should not be protesting or marching, participating in this kind of politics. Um, but I do think it's like, you know, there's a lot of energy going on and understandably and justifiably, um, but don't mistake that um, for, for, for what it is that we need to be doing. But I wanted to like be very, very clear about one thing that Matt was getting into with the union stuff is that, um, you know, because, uh, you know, we're talking about this failed political movement. Um, and you know, now that we're getting towards the end of the interviews, we're, we're either supposed to be really pessimistic or really optimistic. And and one of the points here is that like one thing that's going on in the U.S. at least, um, and I'm not sure as, in, as much as in other countries. Um, but like the UAW, uh, not trying to blow up anybody's spot or anything like that but it's filled with a lot of people who are like radicals come out of these socialist organizations were part of these movements who are now doing this work um, of not just like the ceasefire. Let's almost drop that for a second. You know, taking on the, the big three auto companies and winning with a really radical strategy. Um, they're now moving very rapidly across the Southeast, um, which for people who aren't as familiar, you know, that's where all of the union jobs went from de- Detroit in the North to the ununionized South. Now the UAW is like really aggressively recruiting and growing significantly. Um, you know, so I, I'm like really down on this past period of, of left populism. I get really frustrated because I see a lot of people who want to do left populism again. Oh, we just need another Bernie Sanders. We need another Jeremy Corbyn. Um, you know, and I just think that's a disastrous way to look at it. Um, you know, I even look at an organization like this. Sorry, I'm front-loading this a lot, but just I'm putting out my, my perspective on these things. Um, you know, I look at an organization like the Democratic Socialists of America. Um, yeah, all the things that people say about it, generally true, right? There's a lot of like middle class politics. Um, very much gets very fixated sometimes on like cultural politics um, and, and things like that. And there used to be a lot of hesitancy about like taking on the Democratic Party. That hasn't shifted dramatically and that organization's in dire financial straits and who knows what's going to happen next. But just as somebody who follows it closely, man, there are factions that have more influence and power in the organization um that i think have a much more materialist viewpoint than existed back in 2016 2017. um you know so like there anyways like a lot of people who came out of these movements are going into you know union campaigns and not just like you know infiltrating but like entering into it working their way up being influential members of it by doing good work um within the american left i think there has been a kind of recognition of this importation of like radical liberalism or whatever you want to call it um you know so anyways it's like I think that there is a truth that this left populism moment is certainly over, um, but I do think coming out of it, a lot of people sort of had this practical experience or just learned okay, well, this shit doesn't work. Um, we can't open up um, you know meetings with having to explain our entire life story and all the different ways we might be oppressed you know visibly or invisibly anyway like I, I think that like there is a case for optimism to be made in a very bleak time that at least some of that stuff got defeated so much. Um, that we can hope that maybe you know what's coming next will be stronger,
2: but I don't know if you shared that that experience or well, I, you know. I mean, I did think it was I did think it was a hilarious irony that like even DSA its budget exploded because it got overloaded with like I don't know even what these demands were or what they were expecting well, the organization it, it, to do. I think but, you like, noted it
0: with your interview with Amber, but it's yeah. just like they were acting like a state, and it's like everyone's always talking about mutual aid. People ask us to do mutual aid with our podcast, and look, I want to help folks out, but it's like you know we don't. First of all, there's not Anything going on here, money wise? But like the idea that you know we'd use the podcast to sort of fix the ills of ca- you know, it's just you can't do that. You know, this is for entertainment and information or whatever.
2: Anyway, go ahead. It's just yeah, like not you know, true. Yeah, yeah, I, I've, I I think the there will always, and I, I want to be clear here, there will be many opportunities in the future and temptations to rerun left populism, because mm. first of all. It, I think it's more populist leftism than, than left populism insofar as it tries to take basically social democratic politics um, but without the organizations and the dense networks of associational groups and trade unions and all the rest of it um, that sustained social democracy and made it a, uh, made it a thing especially more in Europe than in the US but nevertheless um, you know that, that still kind of existed in terms of being able to pressure um, politicians in in the US um, that so it's like trying to do this shortcut thing again right um i don't think social democracy is possible to redo let alone can mm. kind of do the populist shortcut to social democracy and by populist i mean both in terms of circumventing the kind of dense network of organizations um grassroots upwards um vertically integrated organizations with with uh, kind of some sort of hierarchy and, and um cadres being formed and all the rest of it um but also in terms of, um, investing in a, in a hyper leader, you know, this guy who kind of just by himself in in, in, in inculcates and represents all the values and, um, things you hold dear, um, which means that they're very easy to take down because, you know, those who ride, the one who rides in on the highest horse falls the hardest and that remained, it's a truism, but it's, you know, and a cliche, but it remains absolutely the case. It happened with a whole bunch of kind of left populist leaders. Um, it might even be happening to Viktor orban now in, in hungary but that's a whole other story um, but you know he sets up himself as a family values guy and then kind of um seems to be pardoning a, a like a sex offender in, in in his ranks so you know like the the point is that that's the problem with personalism right that it, it, <clears throat> it's very flimsy um and just i think just in general trying to pursue this kind of short circuit where um power is at your grasp and it was like you know the left going from talk, not talking about power and like taking the changing the world without taking power and all this kind of horizontal nonsense to suddenly being so focused on power, thinking that yeah, if you just grab the kind of golden rod of the presidency, that's not a thing. But you know um, <laughs> that suddenly you get, you uh, you hold all the power. Um, so anyway, it um, is now.
1: We're going to make it if I when I take back the White House, the golden rod of the presidency. Is right. Be
2: exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 Sure. Let's do that. Um, but yeah, like th- th- this is why you know. It'll come along again because it'll be some charismatic figure um, or people will delude themselves into thinking that AOC will um, is actually secretly a socialist. And, you know, once she's in power, once she's in the White House, she'll do such and such. Look, there's never a secret campaign. There's no secret, there's no like secret socialist politics that someone has in their back pocket, which they sneak into power saying, oh no, we're gonna actually like, um, you know, honor our international <laughs> treaties and we're gonna make sure that the banks kind of are, retain their profits and, and, but then secretly, you know, burst out the socialist politics. That doesn't happen, right? That never happens. That will never happen. Uh, um, so the, that that's first of all like the kind of to to extend the me- the, the gambling metaphor, I guess, like yeah, someone's holding the cards close to their chest and they've got pocket aces. You know, like that's not that doesn't happen in politics. And so um, when we talk about kind of the problems of organization with left populism, insofar as left populism responded to this crisis of politics, um, you know, the the lack of the lack of kind of um, you know the lack of party structures and all the rest of it, that. This isn't just like, oh, we can rerun the thing again, but with a better candidate and just organize better. Do more organizing. That's not what the kind of crisis of organization means, right? It means that there's a long-term crisis of politics, which is not going to be resolved quickly. It needs to be rebuilt from the ground up. Trade unions, political parties, we might innovate new forms, right? I don't think it's necessarily that we have to look back to the 20th century and say we need to do that specific thing. But the point is that you have to have... Some sort of um, solid base of organizations of people committed institutionalized in a way, you know, committed to a project and a Mm long-term goal and that they meet regularly and they meet face to face. Because when you do not have that kind of institutional setting, everything relies on vapors and vibes and that's very ephemeral and you can be really energetic when something seems hopeful and you just get completely blown out afterwards and you have a long hangover which you know has happened kind of after the 1960s is happening right now um and so you know in a way when you have kind of some institutional setting you're outsourcing motivation to a certain extent to the organization now Mm. so that means that you're um that you're turning up every day you don't need to worry about being super energetic and throwing yourself into um, all sorts of activism and organizing and campaigning because you're just, what you're doing is turning up to your branch meeting every day and it's all organized and formalized, and people have their roles um and that that, mm. that doesn't mean that morale isn't important it is morale questions of confidence et cetera but it but it uh you know it, it doesn't rely on this kind of flimsy thing of everybody being super energized and then being being exhausted by an experience um so yeah when we say organization, you know, a crisis or the, the, the problems of organization, which this whole experience raised, it's not just like a question of tactics or a question of specific practices, which can repeat or improve. Um, we need to mm-hmm. reckon with the fact that politics, doesn't exist i mean you know politics has come back in so far as there's a huge amount of turbulence and the elite has been shaken in its confidence and so that has opened up a little gap for politics but the working class was defeated you know the working class was defeated across the globe um at by the end of the 1980s and probably earlier really with the kind of by the in the middle of the 70s and 80s it was defeated around the globe so there is no Mm -hmm. proletariat there is no socialism there is no you know none of this stuff exists these are things that we know from the past And will need to be reinvented maybe from the ground up and maybe in novel forms um but i think only by reckoning with the depth of the crisis of where we are a crisis which is kind of 200 years in the making you know where we have to understand that a whole phase of politics that existed from um at the very least the mid-19th century until the latter part of the 20th century that that has closed that has come to a close we have to kind of start anew and so all these attempts to kind of short circuit things um are you know are are you know as as serious as saying, well why don't the left vote for Trump? You know, to kind of shake things up and to break the, you know, I like I think I we we should take that as seriously, which is to say not very, as um trying to get kind of Bernie Sanders um elected and then neoliberalism will end, you know? Um mm-hmm.
0: Yeah well I mean um I feel like there's like 10 million uh, things we could get to. I, I didn't even bring up, you know, my bugbear, uh, degrowth, or any of those weird technologies uh, <laughs> that we've been seeing either. Um, so I did say we'll growth at the and, start.
2: I did say growth at the start that the yeah, left doesn't have you a, know, growth, you know, you, know so. you said it,
0: and I was like, oh, I'm about to do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, uh, I would. You know, we should definitely do something again in the future. I always really appreciate uh, speaking with you, and uh, you know, I'm a big fan of, of the podcast, bunkcast. Um, people should read the piece. Will be links below. Also check out
2: your book. I mean, is there anything else uh, that we should be directing people to? Or any episodes? Uh, well, I'm entered a damage mag a damage magazine. Um, should check it out. Second yes, issue, second issue coming out soon. Some great stuff, and I'm gonna have a piece in there. This stuff I was talking about institutions a little bit ago, and about how people get energized by vibes and then get cra- and then crash out. Um, that'll be in, in issue two. So um, yeah, have Hell a look yeah. out for that. That'll be out in a month or so.
0: Yeah, and people definitely should be subscribing to damage as well um we're all big fans of that here too and
1: uh, good uh, bukele apps on the uh, bunga
2: oh yeah nice yeah no, that that's good we're going to be doing a lot more global politics even more than we did before so um yeah bukele um yeah. just lock it lock everyone up yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> well thank you again friend
2: cheers enjoyed it